to be together tonight. I'm excited about the study that we're going to be able to begin. Really optimistic about the next 13 weeks. So the quarter doesn't technically transition until Sunday, right? Uh, but the summer series ended last Wednesday night. So I'm planning on being in here for the, the Wednesday night quarter coming up. So I thought we'd go ahead and, and begin the study that we're going to be in. I spent a lot of time thinking about what might be good for us to study, what might be good for us to think about. I went back and forth on a number of different things and considered a number of different books and ultimately fell to the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles and you like to follow along, we're going to be beginning that study tonight in Daniel chapter 1. If you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along with us this evening, Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be. So like we said, we're going to be thinking about the book of Daniel over the next 13 weeks. It just so happened to work out, beginning tonight, it's 13 weeks until the end of the quarter. So it worked out perfectly that we were able to begin the study tonight. As we walk throughout Daniel, we're going to look at pretty big chunks. We're taking 12 chapters and shoving it into 13 weeks. So we're going to be uh, looking at the full first chapter tonight. As we study the book of Daniel, we're really going to divide up that study into three different parts. Every Wednesday night, we're going to start by introducing the text. We'll begin with that in just a minute. Then we're going to spend some time studying the text, walking through it together, spending some time looking at the context, spend a lot of time talking about context over the next few minutes, talking about what happens throughout the chapter, what's being said, thinking about the text together. But then we don't want to stop there, right? Whenever we study the Bible, we don't want to just study the text and walk away with knowledge. We want to seek application so that we can be transformed. We don't want to just walk away knowing more about Daniel, but we actually want to be transformed by Daniel. Uh, so we'll end every class by applying the text, seeking out applications, seeing how we can invite the text of Daniel into our lives. So I thought that'd be good to just go ahead and, and put up there so you can expect this as we study the text. We'll introduce it, we'll study it, and then we'll do the best that we can to invite a book that's thousands of years old into our lives. So let's begin by introducing the text. We'll go ahead and, and dive in and introduce not only Daniel chapter 1, but really the book as a whole. You might be thinking, why Daniel? You know, there's 66 books in the Bible. We could have chosen a number of different books to walk through. I thought about a lot of different things whenever it came to what should we study, what should we walk through. It's my first Wednesday night quarter. What would be good for us to think about? And like I said, I eventually fell on the book of Daniel. And I really did that for two main reasons. Reason number one, in my opinion, Daniel is a mistreated book. Anyone know why we might suggest that or why we might think that Daniel would be a mistreated book? Yeah, Joel? Yes. So kind of similar to the book of Revelation where uh, they treat it almost like a world map of, of world history and what's happening today, trying to read current times into Revelation or Daniel. So yeah, I think sometimes... It's, it's often mistreated by reading into things that aren't there. I think that kind of ignores the original context, right, of what Daniel was trying to talk about. Uh, so that's one way that I was thinking. A mist we can kind of clear up some of those things. 
If we ever come into uh, contact with teaching online that suggests, hey, what's going on in the world today? Well, that was actually prophesied by Daniel. Well, we might want to check that just a little bit. I think there's another reason that Daniel is mistreated, though. Does anybody have any, any ideas on that? So when we look at Daniel, we spend a lot of time in the first six chapters. Because the first six chapters has a lot of stories that are pretty familiar to us. But then when it comes to those prophecies, maybe a reason that we get tripped up on those is because we don't spend a lot of time in the last six chapters of Daniel. Let me kind of illustrate that to you. I mean, I was, I was thinking about this in my own life. One of the reasons that I chose Daniel is because I've mistreated this book. You remember the story in Daniel chapter 3 about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Pretty familiar story. Uh, my grandfather was preaching on them one time and, and called them Shadrach, Meshach, and Alpha Alpha. So I'll try not to do that. Um, but then we're familiar with the story in Daniel chapter 6 where Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. It's probably a story that we've heard a lot. Daniel chapter 5, the hand writing on the wall. These, if, if you grew up in the church, if you had that opportunity, these are probably stories that you've heard a lot. Stories that you heard in Bible class, you've probably heard sermons on these stories before, especially VBS. I mean, VBS, we talk about Daniel in the lion's den, we talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But what about when it comes to the last six chapters? What could you tell me about the prophecy about the four creatures in Daniel chapter 7? Or the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days sitting down on his throne? Or maybe the vision in Daniel chapter 8 of the ram and the goat having a battle there, the, the vision that Daniel has in, in Daniel chapter 8. I think that just serves to illustrate how we haven't neglected this book. It's not that we've stayed away from Daniel, that we've ignored Daniel, that we don't spend any time in Daniel, but I think we've mistreated it not only by twisting some of those prophecies that we find in the last six chapters, but also by ignoring those last six chapters and, and never really wading into them. So what I want us to do is to treat it right. We're going to walk through those first six chapters of Daniel, thinking about those stories that are pretty popular and seeing what we can learn from those. But we're also going to walk through the last six chapters. So uh, looking forward to that, how we can study this and, and think about this together. The second reason why I chose Daniel is I think it's a pretty relevant book especially for the world that we're living in right now, the way that you're going to hear me say it, kind of the main theme in the book of Daniel is that God is in control. That's timely, isn't it? Especially for the kind of world that we're living in right now. God rules in the affairs of man. God is sovereign over all of His creation. All different ways that you could express this main idea that God is in control. I mean, you see it in every chapter throughout the book of Daniel. For instance, you see how God is described throughout the book. He's described as the God of gods and a Lord of kings, the God of heaven, the King of heaven, the Lord of heaven, and the Most High. This is a God who's exalted over all things. This is a God who's in control. This is a God who is reigning on the throne over all nations. We find as we read throughout the book that the Lord is sovereign, which means... He's the one who reigns. He reigns over everything. And He is in control over the kingdoms of the world. One of the main themes we see in the book of Daniel is it really doesn't matter who's sitting on a human throne. What matters is that God is sitting on His throne. 
And he's always going to be sitting on that throne. We'll, we'll work into Daniel chapter 2 and talk about that kingdom that will endure forever. After those four kingdoms, here's a kingdom that's going to endure forever. In that kingdom, God reigns supreme. We see in the book of Daniel that God is triumphant over evil. He brings justice to His faithful servants. We'll see that tonight as we work our way through chapter 1. But you take just a minute to think about the world we're living in and all the chaos and the craziness that we're surrounded by, all the uncertainty that we encounter. It's like, I, I feel like I shouldn't even go down the list because you know it. You live in it every day. How would this idea change the way that we think about our world? How would this idea change the way that we interact with our world? I step into the chaos, I step into the craziness knowing that God is in control of it. That God reigns over all of it. He is the one who is sovereign. And again, we'll, we'll emphasize that as we walk throughout Daniel chapter 1. So why Daniel? Why are we going to walk through this book? We could come up with a lot of different reasons to walk through the book of Daniel. But two that came to my mind, I think we mistreated a little bit. And so I think walking through it will be together will be helpful. And it's also so relevant. A book that's thousands of years old speaks directly to us in the life situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, so that's what I want to mention, kind of to introduce this study as we work our way, uh, getting ready to go into Daniel chapter 1. Is there anything else we want to mention about just introduction stuff? Okay, well let's work our way into the text. Well, let's begin by looking at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, since I'm the one who has the microphone, I guess I'll read that. I, I should hand out some microphones, make some other people read. I don't know, I might have to play with that. Uh, you people who are laughing, I'm going to come for you first. Uh, okay, Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Verse 6, this introduces some, some major characters here. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We might recognize Daniel. Maybe those last three names are a little bit foreign to us. But then it clears it up in verse 7, names that we know a little bit better. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Um... You know, I think about, we're approaching this here in a couple of weekends. Do you remember when this happened? Remember when 9-11 took place? For probably most of us in here, it's not a vague memory. It's not something that you barely remember. If, if we were to talk about this, you could probably say, yeah, I, I remember where I was. And I remember who I was talking to. I remember who told me. I remember how I found out on that day, we found that America is not invincible against its enemies on even our 
our home turf and, and even our, our, our country within the contiguous 48 states, but that attacks can happen. And that day our enemies brought us down to our knees. When we look at the book of Daniel, when we look in the very first verse, we see something similar happening. The people of Judah, so we remember this history, right? It goes all the way back into the book of First Kings, that originally the kingdom of Israel was united. But then I think it was around 930 B.C. where the kingdom split. Split into two kingdoms. You can see them up on the screen. The first is the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, whose capital city was Samaria. But then the southern kingdom, made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the capital city in Jerusalem, is the one that we're centered on in Daniel chapter 1 for, for hundreds of years. The people of Judah thought that there was no way we could ever be attacked. There's no way anybody could ever overtake us. There's no way anyone could ever take the city of Jerusalem because look at who our God is. Look at what He's done in our history. He's going to save us and He's going to protect us and, and He's going to be with us if anybody even tries. Well, what happens in the very first verse of Daniel? Did you catch it? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which this is about 605 B.C. if you want to date this, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. About 20 years later, Nebuchadnezzar is going to completely destroy the city of Jerusalem and burn the temple and take almost all of the people into captivity. This, this takes place 20 years before that, though. In about 605 B.C., where he besieges the city, he takes control of the city. Well, how could God allow that to happen? This is God's people. Right? How did this happen to them where a foreign nation walks in, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians who were the leading world power at the time, how in the world did this happen? What's it say in verse 2? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So this isn't something that just happened by chance. This is something that the Lord did. The Lord is the one who caused the Babylonians to step into Jerusalem and take over the city. He was the one who delivered Jerusalem into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar and the army of the Babylonians. Why, why did God allow that to happen? Why, why is God causing? Which we just said the main theme of the book is what? God is in control. Can you see how He's in control in verse 2? This isn't just happening, but why does it happen? text doesn't tell us here. This is just the narrative. This is just the story. But if we go throughout the rest of the New Testament, we actually find why this takes place. Let me go ahead and spool it for you, and then we'll read through some passages. It takes place because of their sin. Their disobedience to God. Judah's constant rebellion against God and refusal to listen to all of the prophets that God would send. You notice, this is something that Moses talked about all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. When the children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land, this is hundreds of years before Daniel chapter 1, where he's talking about the curses of disobedience. That if you are disobedient to God, if you're disobedient to the words that He's delivered, these are the curses that are going to come upon you. And you notice one of them is that the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. From the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. You skip down to verse 52, what are they going to do? 
They shall besiege you. And then again in verse 52, and they shall what? Besiege you. Isn't that exactly what's happening in Daniel chapter 1? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and what? Besieged it. It's the same Hebrew word. He took control of it. God warned His people through Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy. If you're disobedient to me, a foreign nation is going to come and they're going to take over. We find it in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 6 where this is a part of the narrative of Isaiah where he's speaking to King Hezekiah who, by the way, we're going to begin a sermon series on throughout September. Excited about that. So if you want to be studying something, think about the life of, of Hezekiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to where? Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Of course, encompassing those several attacks that happened. In Jeremiah 25, verses 8-11, through 11, Jeremiah said, who really was a contemporary of Daniel, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, what? Because you have not obeyed my words. You've been disobedient to me. You've been rebellious. You haven't listened to me. Behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. You skip to the end of verse 11. How long is the captivity going to last? It's going to last 70 years. And we actually see Daniel living to the end of that captivity. We'll see that at the end of Daniel chapter 1. So here's King Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Judah into their hand. God is the one who is causing this to happen. He comes in. He besieges the city of Jerusalem. And there's a couple of different things that he takes. What's the first thing? He takes some articles. Some articles from the temple. Remember in Jerusalem, that's where the temple was. The temple that Solomon built. He goes into the temple. The Babylonian army goes into the temple. Takes out some of the treasures. Some of the vessels. And what do they do with them? Well, they put them in the temples to their their gods, their Babylonian gods. Sad to see, isn't it? It would have broken a Jewish person's heart to hear, hear some things that were dedicated to worshiping God in the temple. And now they're being used to worship no telling how many Babylonian idols. So that's the first thing they took. But then the second thing is a little bit more significant than just some gold or silver or, or vessels from the temple he actually takes some people, doesn't he? What kind of people does he take? Young men, right? Just any young man? Nope. Had to meet certain qualifications. Uh, they had to be from, if you skip down to this is verse, into verse 3, they had to be from the royal family and nobility, without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent, pretty, pretty high standards there. Ne Nebuchadnezzar, what he does, he comes in and takes the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, those who are from nobility, those who are good looking, those who are smart, those who are wise. You know, these, from what I've read, I don't know what you've heard in your previous studies of Daniel, but from what I've read, these young men would have probably been teenagers. Probably high, high teenage age. High in their teens. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes them, and what does he do with them? Here's what the text says. He educates them. What I like to call that is a good brainwashing. I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar is really trying to do, where he pulls all of these young men 
who are the best of the best in the nation of Judah, and he's wanting to change everything about them. He's wanting them to forget their heritage. He's wanting them to forget who they were. He's wanting them to forget where they came from. If you walk through this text, you can kind of see that. If you look at uh, the end of verse 4, well, really towards the middle, uh, they're going to stand in the king's palace. They went from being a part of the nobility of Judah to the nobility in Babylon. They're no longer going to study their own literature. They're going to study Babylonian literature. They're no longer going to study their own language or speak their own language for that matter. They're going to study and begin to speak by immersion the Babylonian language. Verse 5, they're not going to eat their own food, which this will be important in just a minute. You know, the Jews had pretty strict dietary laws. In the Old Testament law, there were some things they could eat, there were some things they couldn't eat. They even had to cook some food in a certain way. So they're pretty strict on that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you can forget about that. You're going to eat my food. And you're going to drink my wine. That's verse 5. This education, brainwashing, is going to last for three years. And at the end of that time, they're going to stand before the king. He's wanting to take teenagers from Judah train them for three years, make them Babylonians, and then use them for his own advantage. I think perhaps the worst thing in all of this is he's wanting them to forget their religion. How do we see that? You see the name changes in verses 6 and 7 where we have Daniel, which names back in this time are not like names today. I haven't picked out a name for a child yet, but what I, my, my hypothesis is, is we pick out names today based on how they sound, right? We want names that sound good, or maybe it's, see, my middle name is Earl, you might not have known that. They didn't pick that based on sound. That was a family name. I got made fun of for that a lot. Um, but names back in this time, it wasn't really about how they sounded, it was about their meaning, what your name meant was what was significant to you, and you found your identity in that. And so here's Daniel. His name means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh, which is God's personal name, is gracious. Michelle means who is what God is. That's a, that's a powerful question, isn't it? And then Azariah says Yahweh means Yahweh has helped. Nebuchadnezzar takes those names and changes them from names that honor God to names that honored their, their gods, their idols. So Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Baal protect his life. Hananiah was changed to Shadrach, which means the command of Aku. You can see their polytheism here. Michelle was changed to, to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Going from who is what God is to who is what Aku is. And then Azariah was changed to Abednego, my grandfather would say, Alpha, Alpha, servant of Nebo. He's wanting to change everything about them, even wanting to change their religion. And so as we continue reading in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21, and we kind of close out the rest of this chapter, we're going to see how that works out, especially when it comes to our four main characters that we just mentioned in verses 6 and 7. Okay, let's take a breath for just a second. Is there anything else we want to mention about that in verses 1 through 7? Just some kind of context, gets her feet wet, gets us into the story. Okay, well this is a long reading, uh, but join me in verse 8 and we'll close out the chapter. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice throughout this chapter, they're called by their Hebrew names. I think that's significant. It may be a hint telling us, here's where we're going to stand. You tried to rename us. You tried to change our identity. It's not going to happen. And so that, you'll see this again as we keep reading. Uh, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the, king had commanded that, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, we mentioned a minute ago, Jews had very, very strict food laws, right? Especially when you read throughout the book of Leviticus, they had what they could eat, what they couldn't eat. They had to cook certain things in certain ways. And so now, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's feeding these teenage boys from Judah, food from his table, his own wine. It appears that there was something in the food, maybe something about the wine, that went against those Old Testament food laws. So if Daniel or, or Michelle or Azariah, if, if they would have eaten of this food, it would have caused them to go against what God commanded them to do in the Old Testament law. So what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel do just eat the food. Just drink the wine. It's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's just why, I mean, you're eating off the king's table. It probably would have been pretty good. Everybody else is doing it. Just eat of the food. Drink the wine. Don't make a big deal out of it. Now, I, I love this word in verse 8. I don't know what your translation might say. The ESV says, Daniel resolved. Translation say something different? Anybody use a different word? Yeah. He made up his mind. Yes. That's exactly what he did. He put his foot down. He drew a line in the sand. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat that food. I'm not going to drink that wine because it would cause me to, the word that's used here, it would cause me to be defiled. It would cause me to go against what the Lord has commanded me to do. So what does Daniel do? He draws a line in the sand and says, I'm not going to do it. I don't care what everybody else is doing. I don't care if it's good. I'm not going to do it. And we'll see in just a few, we'll, as we read, this is not just Daniel, but his three other friends are also involved in this, right? It's not just Daniel standing by himself. But Daniel is certainly the main character in this story. So in verse 8, he goes to the chief of the eunuchs, the guy in charge of all of this education. And he asked him, can I just have vegetables and water? 
Notice that Daniel didn't demand anything. Daniel didn't walk in and, and say, I'm not doing it. You can't make me do it. He walks in and makes a request. He's very, very respectful. And the chief of the eunuchs is kind of hesitant, right? Usually he would have said, no, you can forget about it. But here he's a little bit hesitant. And again, we find the reason in verse 9. The second time we find this phrase, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So again, God is involved in this, right? God is working in this. God is in control of this situation. As Daniel is doing all that he can to remain faithful to God, he makes the request to the chief of the eunuchs and he basically says, well, I don't want to get in trouble with the king. If this turns out bad for you and you're not looking like everybody else and you're not as healthy as everybody else, it's going to be my head that's on the chopping block. I'm not so sure I want to do that. Okay, Daniel, just give up. You heard no. That was a polite way of saying no. It's time to give up on this. Just eat the food. Well, no, he keeps, he keeps going. He makes another since this person was so hesitant. Verse 11 he goes to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs assigned over. See, we see here's the four that are involved together. And he says, let's, let's make a deal about this. Ten days. Give us ten days. You give everybody else the food from the king's table and, and the king's wine. You give us vegetables and water. At the end of those ten days, you look at them. You look at us. And then according to what you see, that's what you do. If we are healthier than them, then you let us have the vegetables and water. If we're not, then, then we won't. Again, notice the respect here. Daniel is not going in and stomping his feet, and he, he's not being a jerk about it. He's not being mean or disrespectful about it. In humility, he just says, hey, just let us try. Give us ten days. So they agreed to that. Uh, they agreed to, to give him ten days. In verse 14, he listened to him. And so what was the result? The result is what we find throughout the rest of the chapter. Daniel put his foot down. He was resolved yet respectful. We'll come back to that thought in just a second. He was resolved. He made up his mind, yet he was respectful about it. He said, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Let me make these requests. His request was granted. And the result is positive, isn't it? God's way is always the best way. When you choose to follow God, then ultimately things are going to work out. Especially when we recognize the main theme of the book. God is the one who's in control. And so we see in verse 15, at the end of the ten days, uh, the four guys here, they were better, they were healthier, fatter in flesh than all the use. You know, we wouldn't think that was a good thing in our culture. They were fatter in flesh. No, they were healthier, is, is, is what that means. Uh, so they were allowed to drink water and have vegetables and and to, to go through this Babylonian education like they were being required to do, but also to remain faithful to God. And that's what really mattered to them. You notice how God blessed them as a result of their faithfulness. Uh, God gave them learning. Again, there's the third time. God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Daniel specifically had understanding and all visions and dreams. Well, that's going to be important as we keep going throughout the book. It's Put a star by that. You're going to see that again. So at the end of the three years of their education period, they, they're brought in before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible says that nobody was like these four men. Nobody was like the four men who had decided to remain faithful to God. Not anybody among the young men of Judah. 
And for that matter, not anybody, all the magicians and chanters in the kingdom of Babylon. There wasn't anyone among the young men that they were trained with. And there wasn't anyone among the enchanters, magicians of Babylon who matched these guys. God blessed them greatly, didn't He? As a result of their faithfulness to Him. I think we can draw out a lesson from that. They were ten times better, the text says, than the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom. And so in verse 21, Daniel has a pretty long stay. We mentioned towards the beginning, the captivity is going to be how long? Seventy years? Yes. And so Daniel stays there until the first year of King Cyrus, the first leader of the Medo-Persians. He, he remained in the Babylonian government for seven decades. Seventy years in this spot, of course, starting as a teenager here in Daniel chapter 1. Okay, is there anything else we want to mention about that? Any other ideas? Or Okay, well that's a, you know, we could spend a lot more time in Daniel chapter 1, I think, but that, to stay on schedule, that's a pretty, I think, good summary of Daniel chapter 1. So let's seek some application here for our last five minutes. I'm supposed to be quiet at 745, aren't I? Is that about right? I'm, I'm getting a lot of blank. Yes, Joel says yes. Okay, number one. Trust in God's rule. It's an idea that you might think I'm going to be a broken record by the end of this study, but it's something that we have to keep coming back to, especially in the world that we live in. Trust in God's rule. We find three different times, verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, that God is involved in this story. God gave. He gave the people of Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. He gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He gave, verse 17, learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. God is involved in this story. God is working in this story. God is in control. And Daniel trusts that fact enough to plant his feet and to say, I'm going to be obedient to you. I'm going to be faithful to you. He trusted in God's rule. We could again talk about all of these different difficulties and the craziness and the chaos that we see in our world today. I think we need to hear the same thing. God is still sitting on His throne. God is still the ruler in the affairs of men. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. And we need to trust that enough in the midst of the chaos to plan our feet and say, this is where I'm going to stay. This is where I draw the line, and I'm not going to go across it. Number two, changing circumstances should not change our faithfulness to God. Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah, everything changed for them. They were taken out of the nation of Judah, taken out of Jerusalem, uh, the nobility and royal families. They were taken to a new country, a new place. They learned new things around new people, speaking a new language, having a new religion forced on them. I'm sure the list could go on and on. If we were to experience that, could you imagine experiencing that as a teenager, by the way? All of those changing circumstances and then being a teenager in the midst of all of that, their circumstances changed greatly in Daniel chapter 1, but their faithfulness didn't. Their circumstances changed, but they recognized whether I'm in Judah, whether I'm in Babylon, God's Word is still the same. God still requires the same things of us, and so even though their circumstances changed, their dedication to God and His Word did not. I would argue our circumstances are probably not going to change as dramatically as theirs did. But our circumstances do change. Very quickly, very easily, we've seen that 
throughout 2020 and, and 2021. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good. Sometimes our circumstances change. Maybe we get a raise or a promotion and think, wow, I, I can stand on my own two feet right now. I don't really need God. I don't really need church. And then, and then maybe things change badly and, and the, the circumstances go, go south and we think, well, God doesn't love me anymore. No, changing circumstances, that's always going to be a part of life. But faithfulness should remain constant. As much as my circumstances change, the line in the sand is still there. God's Word is still contained between these covers. God still expects us to be faithful to Him even when everything is changing around us. And then number three, resolve with respect. Daniel did that. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. But he also wasn't disrespectful about it. He also wasn't, I mean, we could use the word a jerk about it. I, I used that word a little bit earlier, but I struggle to think about it in another way. I imagine people today who, I mean, they draw those lines, and that's a good thing, and they say, we're going to stand up for truth, and, and, and we're going we're, we're to do what God wants us to do. But then you see the rudest post on Facebook the next day. Or somebody who draws a line in the sand and says, I'm going to be faithful to God, and then that's not really reflected in how they talk to other people. And we use excuses like, well, I'm, I'm just blunt. I just come across that way. Well, now how about, let's be resolved. Let, let's draw the line. Let's say I'm not going to go past this. I'm going to be faithful to God. But I'm also going to be respectful about it. And I'm going to, like Daniel, try to seek out an option that suits everybody. That's what Daniel did, right? He didn't push the chief eunuch when the chief eunuch said, well, hey, this could... This could come down on my neck. He didn't push him. He went to somebody else and said, hey, let's make a deal for 10 days. We don't have to be jerks for Jesus. I think sometimes we think that boldness means I'm disrespectful. That if I'm going to be bold in living my life for Jesus and proclaiming the Word of God and sharing the truth, that means I have to throw it in your face and my Bible is going to be hardback and I'm going to beat you down in the head with it. No, let's, let's be resolved. But let's be respectful. We learn that from Daniel in this chapter, even though he was going through great difficulty, he drew a line in the sand, but also sought out an option that was best for everybody involved. And I think if we can do that, our lives would benefit greatly. Anything else we want to mention about that? Just three ideas that I think we could take from this text. Appreciate everybody being here tonight. Appreciate you being a part of this class, one blessing that we have when we get together is to extend the invitation that those who haven't obeyed the Lord, those who are struggling in their obedience to the Lord have the opportunity to respond to Him. The invitation is always open, but this is a really convenient time. If, if your life is not right with God, if you were to die tonight and you're not confident about where you would go, would you let us help you with that? We would love to have that opportunity as, as Seth leads us in our invitation song.